On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. In terms of the setting. Jesus is still in Galilee where he found Philip back in chapter 1, verse 43. Philip was from Bethsaida. They're now in Cana, which is only about 15 kilometers north of Nazareth. But as you can see, mountains and all. That's the geographical setting. And Capernaum that was mentioned at the end in terms of where Nazareth, I mean where Jesus' mother Mary was living, it's an even smaller community up on the northern shore that didn't, it's so small it didn't even make the map. Uh, And that's where Jesus based a lot of his ministry at. Now, in terms of the beginning of his ministry, we have completed the Apostle John's introduction of Jesus in the prologue. His introduction of Jesus as the Word, the Lagos, that which was with God and was God. And we've also had the introduction by John the Baptist of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by Nathaniel as the King of Israel. And also Finally, by Jesus himself as the Son of Man, which is always Jesus' reference to himself, pointing to Daniel 7. And, you know, there's only one time where Son of Man is used in reference to Jesus in the New Testament outside of Jesus' own use. And interestingly, that is in uh, the speech of Stephen in Acts 7. Now, chapter 2 opens a new section of the gospel containing what 
the evangelist, the writer John's account of, of the ministry of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus. And, and there's a division that's been recognized at the close of chapter 12. The first section, which has come to be known as the book of signs, is organized around seven miracles. John's word for the miracles is signs. Uh, Samia, which is an alternative to miracles or wonders. John does not, of course, have any reservation uh, about the operation of the supernatural in respect to what's taking place. He just uses a word that says these point beyond themselves to something in Jesus' life and identity and ministry. And then chapter 12 concludes with the triumphal entry uh, with, with Jesus' prediction that he was going to be lifted up and glorified. And so that's why then chapter 13 verse 1 to the end of the book is often referred to as the book of glory. Talking about Jesus being glorified. It's also, I think, worth observing by way of introduction to understand Jesus' miracles as signs is different from the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptic gospels, uh, look at the miracles. Their favorite word for the miracles is dynamis, like dynamite, acts of power, or, or the word terada, meaning wonders. In fact, only one of those two words is even used in John, and that's in John 4:48, where Jesus accuses people of only believing if they see signs and wonders. Uh, the distinction, I think, can be put in, in this way. For the three gospel writers, Jesus' miracles are actual occasions of the incursion of the kingdom of God against the reign of Satan. Whereas for John, the miracles, though no less real, are historical acts of God's power that, that carry also huge symbolic meaning. And so throughout the next six of the signs, there is a miracle and then a teaching that refers to what is there in that miracle. I think there's one other aspect of signs that I think is, is really worth noting. Jesus commonly refers to them as works. Works. In fact, in John's gospel, works can also include words, chapter 14, verse 10. And especially for those who want to cast a negative image on works, John's use of works directly links the ministry of Jesus to that of the Father. In John 5, 17, my Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. So close is the union of son and father that the works of Jesus can actually be considered as the father's works in him. So when we think about signs like the entire, entire gospel of John it confronts us with Jesus and the inescapable challenge. Who are you? Who are you? That question comes up, in fact, in chapter 8, verse 25. And so, our text began, on the third day, there was a wedding. 
The third day means three days after the call of Nathaniel, verses 45 to 51 of chapter 1. And since that was on the fourth day of the week that's recorded there in John, this day would be, according to the creation week that, that John is developing, it would be the, the Sabbath of the new creation week. However, in reality, it would have been a Wednesday. I say, well, how in the world can you say that? Well, in Jewish tradition, you got married on a Wednesday if you were a virgin. You only got married on a Thursday if, in fact, you were a widow that was being remarried. Those were the two wedding days, Wednesday and Thursday. And so the third day reference I think is what we really need to hear. Remember what Origen said that I shared last week? It's a day in John's Gospel that always points to something that is mysterious. The author Bruce Milne points out that there is some consensus among the commentators that the two events that are going to be in chapter 2, the first of which we're going to look at today, the changing of water into wine, the second being the cleansing of the temple, both of those in chapter 2, those establish the terms of Jesus' ministry. They also anticipate Christ's future work. Uh, another man, J.C. Ryle, proclaims, to purify the whole visible church and hold a marriage supper, that'll be among the first acts when he comes again. Speaking of Revelation. The invitation of Jesus the wedding is interesting clearly he's not perceived as an anti-social killjoy because weddings were huge celebrations in fact the depletion of the wine supply is probably explained by the duration of a Jewish wedding uh, of which I'm going to be doing one come October they set their date first weekend of October autumn and Andrew are going to get married uh, but the idea of in Jewish culture, the celebration lasted a whole week. A whole week. And others have pointed out the fact that there, there seems to be maybe a family link behind the invitation. Mary appears to have had some form of a leading role in terms of what we now maybe call catering. Uh, and it was, however, a serious mistake, a social indiscretion, and because of the honor-shame basis of their culture, to run out of wine reflected very poorly on the bridegroom. So, as we begin digging in, what can we learn about Jesus from this story? Now, remember John's stated purpose was that he chose to write in his gospel those things that would point us to, that would help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we could have life in his name. Six disciples now, three sets of brothers, have now put their trust in Jesus and have started their lifelong walk with him. From the very beginning, they've begun to learn more about him. Peter and Andrew, James and John, and now Philip and Nathaniel, who we otherwise know as Bartholomew. Now, 
those of us who read the gospel record in its entirety are, are prone to take these events for granted. But to the disciples, each day and each new event brought marvels that were difficult to understand. And in this chapter alone, John records two very remarkable incidents that reveal wonderful revelations of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Now, first of all, I want to share with you the fact that I have borrowed a threefold division from a man by the name of Warren Wiersbe. I, I liked his three designations. Um, in a book series called Be Alive, the one on, uh, I mean, the B series, in the one on chapters 1 to 12 of John, it's titled Be Alive, Get to Know the Living Savior. But he says in regards to these 12 verses that what we can learn about is, first of all, Jesus as the guest of the wedding. Secondly, Jesus as the son of Mary. And thirdly, and finally, Jesus as the host. And so I want to take those three ideas and expand them a little bit. What do we learn about, first of all, Jesus as a guest at the wedding? Well, I already shared that unlike John the Baptist, our Lord was not a recluse. He accepted invitations to social events. In fact, his enemies took advantage of that and pointed fingers saying, look, he eats with sinners. Jesus entered in to the normal experiences of life and sanctified them by doing that. Not only that, we see how he was in fact accompanied by his mother and, his six, and the six disciples. Perhaps it was the addition of the seven more people that created the crisis because it lasted a whole week and we don't know how large the family was and what they were planning for. But we do have reason to believe that our Lord's earthly family was poor, especially following the death of Joseph. And it's likely that their friends were not wealthy people either. And so perhaps the shortage of wine was related to a, a low-budget feast. We don't know. We don't know whether Jesus and his disciples were invited because of Mary or because of Nathaniel, since Nathaniel was from Cana in Galilee. What we do know is that at this point our Lord wasn't well known yet. He hadn't performed any miracles. It was not likely that he was invited because of the people who knew he, who he was. It was probably his relationship with his mother Mary that brought the invitation. Which brings me to the second thing that I think we can learn about Jesus. <coughs> and that is Jesus as the Son. Since Jewish wedding feasts lasted a week, it was necessary for the groom to have adequate provisions. For one thing, as I already stated, it would be embarrassing, especially in a shame and honor culture, to run out of either food or wine. And interestingly, first, second century document that I found <coughs> indicates that a family guilty of such ineptness 
for minimally inelegance could actually be fined. I mean, you hear that? You're holding a feast for people to come to your child's wedding and you run out of stuff, you can be fined for doing that in the first century. And so, to run out of wine could be costly both financially and socially. Which brings up the why of why would Mary have approached Jesus about the problem? Did she actually expect him to do something special to meet the need? We don't know. Certainly, she knew who he was. He was, even though he didn't she didn't declare to others, she knew those wonderful truths. Remember how in the, the birth narratives it said Mary pondered these things and kept them all in her heart? Now, most believe that she was probably very close to either the bride or the groom's family. And so that would have given her a personal concern for the success of the festivities. Or even the opportunity to know that the supply of wine was depleted. Thanks, Kay. Mm -hmm. Perhaps Mary was assisting in the preparation and serving of the meal. Uh, we don't know. We can only surmise. But something that we do need to note is that Mary did not tell Jesus what to do. She simply reported the problem to him. And secondly, and I want to make sure I say this clearly, Jesus' reply does seem a bit abrupt and to many even harsh. Woman, what's this got to do with me? Now, I can tell you in the 21st century, the year 2024, that if I said to my wife, or if I'd have said to my mother while she was living, Woman, what's that got to do with me? It would not have gone over very well. But you know what? The reason we have a struggle with that is because the failure is on our part to understand first century customs and ways. Woman was actually a polite way to address his mother and his statement simply merely means why are you getting me involved in this matter, Mom? Jesus was making it clear to his mother that from now on he was operating first of all under a different authority he was under the authority of his father in heaven and secondly he was operating on a different timetable and it's at this point that John introduces one of the key elements of his gospel. The idea of the hour. 
As we move on through the Gospel of John, you're going to see passages where it says the hour had not come until we get to his prayer in the garden where he says the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. Mary's words to the servants reveal that she was willing to let her son do whatever he pleased and that she trusted him to do what was right. I think that's a lesson about who Jesus is that we need to learn. That it would be wise for all of us today to obey what she said. It's worth noting that it was Jesus, not Mary, who took command and solved the problem. And like John the Baptist, Mary is pointing not to herself, but to Jesus. This last week, my reading was all in the uh, Third Ecumenical Council. And one of the issues that prompted that was whether or not Mary should be referred to as Theotokos or Christotokos, Mother of God or Mother of the Christ. And that quickly seemed to move into the background because the real issue isn't who Mary is, but who Jesus is. Who we understand Jesus to be. And so Mary points away from herself. Do what he commands you to do. Finally, what can we learn about Jesus, not just as a guest and not just as the son of Mary, but what can we learn from the picture given of Jesus as the host? You know, our Lord's first miracle was not a spectacular event that everybody witnessed. In fact, we're told that it seems that only Mary, the disciples, and the servants knew what had happened. It was a quiet event at a wedding in contrast to his last miracle recorded by John, which was a public event after a funeral, the raising of Lazarus. Each of the six stones, water pots, could contain about 20 gallons each. But what is noted is that they were filled to the brim. Why do you think that's mentioned by John? Pointed out. Because nothing else could have been added. They were filled to the brim with water. And I'm going to tell you this. The word that is used is not a word that refers to grape juice. Okay? The only thing the Bible ever condemns is strong drink and drunkenness. Wine was the accepted drink of that society in that day. But what is especially noted is the quality of this new wine. It was so superior that the man in charge of the banquet highly praised it and of course the groom's family then would have basked in the glory of the compliments. It also noted that the miracle did something for the disciples. When they realized that that was water, but when it was taken out and given, it was wine, it revealed the glory of Jesus Christ to them and a stronger foundation for their faith. Listen to me. 
Though miracles alone are insufficient evidence for declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. I mean, think about it. How quickly? How quickly does our feeling go away after we've seen something and it's convinced us we need to make a change? Remember 9-11, some of you? It's hard for me to believe that there are people now that are in a conversant ages that 9-11 is kind of pressing their memory. It seems like yesterday for me. I can tell you exactly where I was at. Uh, and in fact, had told my wife, called her and told her, I said, turn the TV on, something horrible is taking place just as the second plane struck. But the church was full of that Wednesday night having a prayer service that I didn't instigate. And that Sunday, the, the church was full and the following Sundays. But then, things dropped off. That's how miracles tend to be. But the cumulative effect of miracle after miracle certainly began to convince them of his deity. And yet, even after the crucifixion, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the one we thought was going to be the Messiah was crucified. And even though people reported that the tomb was empty, they were downcast. The disciples had to begin somewhere. And over the months, their faith deepened as they got to know Jesus better. But there is certainly more to this miracle than simply meeting a human need and saving a family from social embarrassment. The Gospel of John, unlike the other three Gospels, seeks to share the inner meaning, the significance, the spiritual significance of our Lord's words so that each miracle is in fact a sermon in action. To begin with, the word John used in his book is not dunamis, which emphasizes power, but simeon, which means a sign, something that points beyond itself. It wasn't enough for people to believe in Jesus' works. He said that himself. They had to believe in him, and they had to believe in the Father who sent him. This explains why Jesus often added a sermon to the miracle and that the sermon often interpreted the sign. In John 5, for instance, the healing of the paralytic on the Sabbath opened the way for a message on his deity as the Lord of the Sabbath. The feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 led naturally into a sermon on him as the bread of life. We don't have that with this first miracle. So, I think it's warranted to ask that if our Lord had preached a sermon after he turned the water into wine, what might he have said? And I think for one thing, he would have likely told the people that the world's joys always run out and always, always fail. Can't be regained. But the joy that he gives is ever new and ever satisfying. 
And by the way, throughout the scriptures, wine is in fact a symbol of joy. But our Lord would certainly have had a special message here for his people. In the Old Testament, the nation is pictured as married to God and unfaithful to her marriage covenant. The wine ran out. And all Israel had left was six empty water pots. They held water for external washings. But they couldn't provide anything for the internal cleaning and joy that was needed. And I find it interesting that Moses' first miracle wasn't a blessing, but a plague. And his first miracle was turning water into something. But it was turning water into blood. That's something to chew on a little bit. Because that speaks of judgment. Our Lord's first miracle speaks of grace and joy. I think the miracle also presents a practical lesson in service for God. The water turned into wine because the servants cooperated with Jesus and obeyed his commands. And I think in this miracle, our Lord brought fullness where there was emptiness. He brought joy where there was disappointment. And something internal for that which was only external. The water for the ceremonial washings. So what's my challenge? Well, once again, there's a definite link that we need to notice. In our text, we see that link in, between verse 11 and the purpose statement of chapter 20. This, verse 11 says, The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The purpose of the link is to connect the signs that Jesus is going to be doing of which John is going to develop six more with an understanding that because of this sign as with those that are going to follow the disciples believed in him and they continued to follow him and they continued to follow his teachings let's pray Father God Things happen every day. Some of those, to be quite honest, are very demonic. Help us to realize that we're in a bought battle. And not to be distracted by those events, but to see the signs. Through John's eyes, through the gospel, things that he experienced as he walked with Jesus. So that we can develop a proper understanding of who Jesus is, why he came, and why he died for us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of invitation today is going to be the song Follow On, number 434. We're going to sing two verses. Mm -hmm.